You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. and welcome to Ask Strong Towns. This is Kia Wilson now with the new spiffy title of Communications Manager for Strong Towns. And I am here with my pal, Chuck Marone, who is our president. How are you doing today, Chuck? Hey, doing very, very well here. I was on my way to the office and uh, my mom lives like on, I think was, I don't, it was a little late for, she goes to morning mass at the church, which is like four blocks from my house. This was too late for that. So I'm not sure what she was doing, but all of a sudden my mom pulls up and she's like, you know, Chuck, would you like a ride? And I'm like, no, I could drive myself. I mean, <laughs> like I'm walking because I like walking. Um, yeah. I got to see my mom this morning on the way in, which was really, which was nice. Because she lives, I mean, they live like, you know, on the farm, the original Maroon homestead right. way out of town. So it's kind of cool. But yeah, so day's going That's adorable. Well. I like the idea of you as like a latchkey kid wandering the streets. <laughs> Your yeah. mom makes sure you're all good. So gives you some apple slices and peanut butter on the way yeah. to gear you up for your big webcast. Well, yeah, exactly. um, <laughs> well, before we dive in, let me just give a welcome to anyone who hasn't been to Ask Strong Towns before. Um, if you haven't been, Ask Strong Towns is our monthly Ask Me Anything webcast where you get your chance to ask Chuck and I anything that's on your mind about how the Strong Towns approach might apply in your place, what questions you have about what we would think of a certain project, um, kind of anything that you're thinking about that you think especially would be helpful for other residents of other towns, other strong citizens to hear by way of example. So um, there is a little button, uh, I believe on your screen, it's gonna be to the left, it says Q&A. That is where if you are participating live in this webcast, you wanna go ahead and put your questions. A few recommendations on that. Um, please be aware that this is going to be re-released as a podcast. So don't put any links to any visuals. Um, make sure that these are questions that you can understand in audio format only. Brevity is the soul of wit. So be sure to keep those questions short and concise and to the point. And always think about how someone listening in Sioux Falls or Antarctica, maybe not Antarctica, <laughs> might um, hear your question and apply it to their place as well. Um, so if you have any questions for us, you can go ahead and put them in that chat field. That's a different button on your screen. Otherwise, we have some pre-submitted questions to kick us off. Are you all ready, Chuck? I'm ready. Go for it. All right, let's do it. So from the pre-submitted pile, Mark of Minneapolis, Minnesota asks, long ago, Rockford, Illinois, decided to allow highway to not allow, excuse me, Highway I-90 through the middle of downtown. The result? Eight miles of Strode heading to that highway, lined with neglect and empty big box stores. Was Rockford really better off not having I-90 go through downtown? I may generalize that a little bit and say, what should you say to um, a city leader who says, if we don't put this highway here, what better is going to go in its place? Right. Um, it's interesting because... Uh, and I don't want to say the question is moot because we still get this a, a little bit, but like the days of highway building in that context are over. Um, you know, we, we had this period of time in the, uh, in the post-war age where we went in and had this debate over whether the highway should run through the middle of town or around them. 
And, you know, it was essentially, as this question points out, pick, you know, pick your poison. Do you want to die by ripping your heart out or do you want to die by slowly bleeding to death around the edge? And it really, you know, it, it, I, I, I think that there is a, um, there's an argument to be made if it's, you know, obviously death by guillotine or death by burning, you know, like maybe we all have our own preferences. I think the underlying, you know, commonality is is the the negativity of the development approach. And I don't really know is there's, you know, you can say like, oh, Rockford screwed up, or you know, someone in a different position should have done it differently. Whenever you, um, you know, whenever you run a highway through the middle of town, uh, what you are doing is you are giving space that is today uh, for creating wealth and and essentially. So supporting your community financially and all the kind of complex things that go with that, you know, the ability to bike and walk, the ability to have a house near where you would potentially work or shop, all the like complexity of that, all that gets simplified down to can you drive and can you park? Um, and that has a huge impact on the, the financial stability of that, of that core. If you look out on the edge, though, I mean, if, if you do it in a different way, essentially, we're, we're not going to run the highway through the middle of town. But what we're going to do is we're going to put this strode all around the whole outside of it and basically create like a, a low cost, low value pop up big box strip mall drive through restaurant kind of world. While simultaneously, and I can say this about Rockford, uh, simultaneously reconfiguring all of our local streets to be auto dominated you've essentially done the same thing just in like a, a much uh, a much more expensive and maybe much less direct kind of way. You've essentially shifted the pattern of development and wealth creation from being at the neighborhood focus on the neighborhood level uh, to being, you know, build all at once to a finished state out on the edge with stuff that's not going to last. Um, it seems to me like if, uh, you know, if I had to pick, like pick my poison in a way, I would pick the highway through the middle uh, because at least there might be a chance someday to like reverse that. But yet you're ripping apart the neighborhood. If I put it on the outside, I suppose you could abandon it when all the big box stores fail and you could just make that strode into a road at some point. Um, I don't know. I mean, those are two like really bad options. It, it's interesting because a city the size of Rockford could easily have a really nice high quality road highway that went around it. And with, with, you know, a, a access or two uh, that went into the heart of the community and, you know, that people could use to, from, from a, a distant place to come and access it. What you're not going to have and you're not going to have successfully is an entire commuter culture where I'm going to live way outside of town and I'm going to commute in every day. And the town is basically going to become my parking lot. Uh, but at the same time, I want things to be there. You know, like, that, like those things don't work. That's like having your cake and trying to eat it too. It like doesn't, those things don't work. So I hope that, I hope that answered the question. Do you have any thoughts on it? Something I missed? Well, I, th I think the way the question was formed just makes it sound like we only have these two choices, which isn't true. We have right. the strong towns approach. Right. And um, when you talk about 
choosing between a highway and the road. And wouldn't we have been better off if we had been shuttling people in on a, like a vibrant, strong transportation network rather than having this like hybridization of a transportation network and a real downtown that's ignoring the fact that you could have a real downtown. You could have built in a different <laughs> Right. Um, so right. you could have had a coherent place. Dichotomy. Right. Um, I mean, cause a lot of the arguments for building a highway are the same as the arguments for building a strode. It's like, we need growth. We need it now. We need to create some jobs. We need to get the highway crews out there and working. Um, and it ignores the fact that we have other options available to us. Right. Yeah. And, and I'll acknowledge that sometimes the DOT doesn't give you those options. Um, I, I think that's the, the public policy failure, right? Like, I think that's yeah. where we need to have a, a, a different a different cultural mobilization around what we want our policies to look like. Definitely. Yeah. So we've got a question here from Chris, um, who I think is asking a pretty practical, awesome question. If you are on a town committee and want to bring your ideas from strong towns or anywhere else, how do you do it? Staff people and chairpersons often look upon new ideas as something to dismiss or ignore or even as a threat. How do you be really disruptive in a, on committee contact. That's a that's a really that's a that's a good question, and I think John Reuter, our board member, has taught me more about this answer than just about anybody. Because I I mean I, I'm an I'm an engineer and a planner. I'm not like a politician or an activist. But talking to John, and I find myself on the planning commission now in my own town. I, I've been for a year and a half using these very techniques. What John said that he did when he ran for council is he sat down and he, on note cards, uh, wrote down on, on a different note card, like all the things he thought needed to change and all the things he wanted to accomplish. And as things came into his head and popped up, he would write them down. And he had this big stack of, of cards. Um, I have like a running note in Evernote. Here's all my ideas for Brainerd, all the things that I want to see mm-hmm. happen. Yeah. And then what happens is that through the course of just discourse, so for us uh, here recently, it was this new drugstore, you know, mini big box that wanted to go in on a prominent corner and the ordinances are really bad and the site plan they submitted are really bad and the neighbors didn't like it and where they're putting the parking lot is nasty. All these things were wrong with it and everybody could see that they were wrong, but there was no mechanism to deal with them. To me, that was an idea. And, and John, for John, it's like, pull out the note card. Okay, here's the issue. How do I advance this issue at this time when I've got everybody's attention on it? When you show up to the meeting and say, here's the thing I care about, and you just pound people on it, no, you do get resistance because the bureaucracy is like moving in a certain way. People are moving in a certain way. Unless you, you know, can build a coalition to, to bring something to the top of the agenda. But what is almost like, especially for me on a planning commission, which is just an advisory role. I mean, I, I can't set policy. I can't like set the direction we're going as a city. What I have to do is I have to look for opportunities to intervene. And that means when things get difficult, stepping up and saying, all right, I've got an answer here. So in this particular one, uh, what, what I pointed out was that uh, the problem here is that the strode through town is really nasty. Um, but we, we can't fix that today. That's really hard. I just want everybody to see that that's causing this problem. And the transition to the neighborhood is where we're getting all the friction because you've got these neighborhood stores that are being converted into auto-oriented kind of strode-oriented stuff. 
and they put their parking lots and their dumpsters and all this stuff in the back. So the residences who used to look at, you know, declining residences now look at dumpsters and parking lots. So let's work with those people to figure out a form-based kind of code approach for this street to deal mm-hmm. with that transition. And everyone's like, yeah, that would be awesome. Well, what we're doing is we're basically stopping the bleed of that bad stroke development from going any further in the neighborhood. And the next step will be, how do we actually tame the strode and how do we actually get good development along here? If I would have started with that, I would have just been laughed out of the room. It would have been a joke. No, you know, no one would have wanted anything to do with it because it's such a ludicrous proposition. But if we actually can stop like the spread of the bad and then get build through, through this process, we're meeting with all these people in this neighborhood. We're kind of getting a coalition of people along the street organized. How do we get them out now helping us push the other way? So I, I feel like there's a strategic art to this. And I'm, I'm, John is excellent at it. I am, I am learning and trying to learn from him. But that would, be my, that would be my sentiment. Kia? I think that makes total sense. And I, I like the way you talk about it as sort of a microsurgery um, right. sort of operation. And I wrote an article for this night a long time ago um, that was inspired by community organizers in my community because I think that's a group of people, even if you are an elected official, who have a really good idea of how to get things done because that's why they exist. Um, And they recommended creating what they call an issue cut, which is, I'm just saying kind of what you said in a different language, Chuck, but taking um, the issue you care about, if the issue is the strong town's approach, that's not specific enough. (laughs) You know, you don't walk into a town committee meeting and say, hi, I'd like to put um, adopting the strong town's approach on the ballot. You're going to get left out of the room before people ask you what you're talking about, (laughs) probably. Um, But how can you narrow it down into, okay, transportation matters to me, then improving bike access matters to me. And then, you know, maybe this specific street is where we would have, you know, the most impact. Maybe the next smallest thing we could do would be a tactical urbanism demonstration. It's sort of narrowing down and down and down into an increment that is actionable. It's a little controversial, so people don't just sleep through your proposal. Um, And that is something you can actually do with the resources that you have on hand. So I'll uh, pop a link to that into the post when this runs, that article, and you can give it a a look. I think it really helped. That's perfect. Thanks. Okay, going back to the pre-submitted here, Rachel of Augusta, Georgia had a question that I thought was interesting. You talk quite a lot about running local governments a little more like businesses, how cities can need to actually make a profit by taking in more money than they spend. Novel concept. So I wonder how and why we decided to calculate property taxes using the value, quote unquote, of a property instead of the cost actually incurred by the municipality to service that property. Do you know anything about that history, Chuck? I think I asked you a version of this question when I first started working in Stormtown. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I I, Mm -hmm. I want to, before I answer that directly, I want to just maybe put some nuance into the premise at the beginning of the question, which is you, you talk about running a city like a business. And I, yeah. I'm always very specific about this. So it's one of those things where I, I want to be specific again. Um, I don't think we can run cities like a business. Um, I think we can use business principles to understand how cities work and operate. Um, you know, I, I've run a business. My business wasn't all about making profit. There were things that I wouldn't do for money. Um, but in today's age, the idea of running a thing like a business 
uh, has this connotation of trying to maximize the amount of profit you can get and, and destroy competitors and what have you. And really, government doesn't function in that way. Um, but we can use business principles and we need to use business principles to actually understand how our values are being reflected in a government and, and, and you know, how we are doing. Uh, she correctly states in the, in the question, if we don't make a profit, if we don't have more revenue coming in than we have expenses, uh, it doesn't matter what our values are. We're not going to be able to meet our obligations, uh, our obligations, you know, to each other. So I, I, I don't think it's, I don't think we should overthink this. Um, you know, when we look at any taxing approach, whether it's, you know, property tax or land tax, whether it's sales tax, whether it's, you know, going back to England and Paris where they would tax the number of windows you had, uh, you know, as a, uh, these are all proxy for wealth. How do we tap into the, the wealth that people have? And the, the, the mechanism to tax is never like thought out, you know, like here's the way we create the right incentive structure to, um, you know, get this certain outcome we want. Uh, it's more like, here's where money is. We need money. Here's the easiest way to extract that money with the least amount of pain. Um, you know, a lot of the advocates today for value added tax, the VAT tax, which is a European tax that uh, people have wanted to bring here, uh, you know, the best argument I've heard for it is that it's a cash cow and it's so hidden that nobody knows that they're paying it. And really, from a political standpoint, that's the best kind of tax because you can raise it with impunity and you have very little feedback. Okay. We've argued that there should be more direct correlation between what people pay and, and having that as actual constructive feedback. Um, because people will, you know... People will state their preferences with their pocketbook. And right now, uh, w you know, we have a really distorted feedback mechanism in most land use areas. But I don't think, you know, it, it's, not like, it's not like we tried to accomplish something really great uh, by setting up a property tax system. It's not like we looked at it and said, this is how we can get the optimum land use. We just looked and said, this is where all the wealth is. This is how we tax that wealth. The, the easiest. I'll, I'll also just note cities used to um, have uh, a lot more taxing authority than they do today. For the most part, uh, there, there was a kind of in the 70s and early 80s, uh, there was a kind of push to consolidate um, taxing and spending authority. And today it kind of manifests from the right of the political spectrum. You know, we're going to put caps on how much you can raise taxes locally. We're going to put caps on, uh, you know, what tax rates you can charge. And a lot of that is this response to like, we're trying to control the, the growth of government by telling you what you can't do, not the state government, but we're going to control the local governments. Um, in the 70s, it actually originated from the political left. There was a lot more consensus, though, from the right as well, which there just was on, on a lot of these things back then. And the thinking went, uh, we're having such unprecedented prosperity. Uh, we're doing at the state level really well. Financially, we, we're doing well. The way we become more efficient, the way we do even better, uh, the way we make sure that everybody gets a fair share is to get rid of all these messy little local taxes 
you know, the city's got this business startup fee and this little tax here and this little fee over there. We're going to get rid of all those. We're going to simplify the local taxes down to one or two. And then we're going to have all those taxes collected by the state. And the state will then dole out in a you know, fair way to all the different municipalities. And so it was a simplification thing. If you go back into the 50s and 60s, cities had all kinds of local taxing authority and discretion and you know, you customize your taxes to your place. If you were a big trading center, you'd have taxes extracting wealth from trade. If you were a big agricultural center or a logging or a mining town, you would have taxes that were more accustomed to that. I think one of the things that we've done that has been the most destructive uh, is to say that every city in a state is going to have the same tax structure. So in, in, in Minnesota, where I'm from, Minneapolis-St. Paul which is a very different economy than my little town of Brainerd, which is a very different economy than if you went an hour south of Minneapolis-St. Paul, where it's more like Iowa, or an hour north of us where it's just in the deep you know, Canadian forest uh, coming down into Minnesota. These are very different economies. They all have the same exact tax structure. And that tax structure is not optimized for any of them. So don't overthink it. We just want where the we just you rob banks. Why do you rob banks? Because that's where the money is. Why do you robbery? Because that's where the money is. That's right. that's why. That's why. Definitely. I just think it's such an important question, and it's one that I think we we either get or we don't get all the time. And people sometimes I think write off strong towns because they're like, you're so focused on tax value per acre, you could just change the tax structure, no problem. And a, they don't realize how hard that is to do. Right. Um, and B, they don't realize that even if we magically could um, alter our tax structure to be very appropriate and, you know, bespoke to the place that we were in and the actual needs of the place, we don't have a development process that asks questions about how much money we're going to generate to meet our maintenance costs. Um, right. So, yeah, I, I thought that was a really important insight for me when I started learning about strong towns and I'm glad we had a chance to share it again with this audience. Well, and even if you, you know, we have places that are solely sales tax right. um, and they'll say, well, this analysis has nothing to do with me. You know, you're looking at the property values. I'm like, well, actually it does because it's the wealth of your community. You're choosing yeah. to extract it through a sales tax, which is like the, I think the least coherent kind of way to do it. That, that's how you're doing it. Um, that doesn't change the fact that if you build $2 of public infrastructure and only get $1 of private investment back, you, you can't extract enough wealth out of the sales tax to actually cover that. Like it, it's not going to work. Um, there are rare, rare places. And I, I always use this example because I just kind of like it. Um, you know, if you're Istanbul uh, and you've got all this trade running through, you know, your ports in the, uh, in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, uh, you could tax like commerce and be taxing all these people who don't live anywhere near you and have this like artificially high standard of living um, because you're taxing the trade running through you. And we, we can look at a local example, like the work we've done with Hayes, Kansas, and, and the examination of Hayes, Kansas, this little island in the middle of Kansas on a highway and it's actually kind of like a viable strategy for them to, uh, you know, have this huge uh, truck stop there and to tax the heck out of everybody who drives, stops at the truck stop 
because none of them live there. None of them use any of their infrastructure. They drive in, they use the truck stop, they pay a tax and they leave. Um, that doesn't mean that they should build a whole bunch more commercial development along that same pattern for local people uh, because they're losing money on all of that. And I think that was the big revelation for them. And, and a little bit for me too, is that, you know, if, if, if there are some times where those structures make some sense because of like unique geography, but if you don't build the wealth in the community, you, you're not gonna, it, it doesn't, it doesn't matter if you're a sales tax or property tax or what you are. If you're not building enough wealth, you're, you're, you, there's nothing to extract. There's nothing to totally tax. Agreed. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So onto something that will make us even more angry. Um, Lee Martin has a question out of Macon Bibb County, Georgia. Um, so in Macon Bibb County, we've had the highest pedestrian death rate in Georgia for six of the last seven years. Mm -hmm. A pedestrian fatality review board was created to address the problem, but their focus has been singularly on blaming the victims by spending grant money to educate people walking on how to not get run over. This makes my blood boil. Um, we have two interstates through the city and numerous high-speed five-lane roads. We would call those strodes. That's strong town. Mm -hmm. um, help. How can you educate politicians and policymakers who are stuck in, as you say, passe and outdated road building structure? And he also adds that on top of this, they have some big financial challenges. These things might be related. They haven't seen population growth in 30 years, and they're down to $4 million in their reserve fund. I think Macon Bibb is near Cobb County, um, mm -hmm. which is the one we're, we're focusing on this week. So I, I do think a lot of the, the financial stuff we're going to talk about with Cobb is directly correlated with Macon Bibb and with Gwinnett and with some of the other counties uh, around Atlanta, um, which, which financially are disasters. I mean, they, they really are. Um, if the question is like, how do we raise awareness? I, I'm, I mean, this is all we do, right? I mean, like I, I would say, you know, you need to talk to people, but I, I think that the question gets like more than that. Um, you know, I said this a couple of years ago when I was writing, I did that series on just another pedestrian killed and did the series on all the crashes, you know, we see this in towns where a mom and three kids are killed and, and their response is like, well, we need a billboard and then, you know, like educating people and, and you look back and it's like 12 people were killed in the same stretch in the last right. decade. And you're like, are funerals not like more, compelling than a billboard like i like i don't you know especially like in a town that was this was a small town a town that size like how can you not know that this happened what you know what are you trying to accomplish through education it, it's just it's ludicrous it's 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 maddening because you realize like this is not the core problem um but if the question is how do you change people's minds I kind of have two answers for that. I think that at one point you don't, um, and then those people need to go away. I mean, I, here, in, here in my hometown, I had one council member who I met with over and over and over again. I had him on a podcast uh, a few years ago. His name's Gary Sheeler. I, I, get, I got to the point where I'm like, I like this guy. Like, I, I can like him as a human being, but I hate everything about his worldview and his policies, and like, I don't... <laughs> And I just had to like work to help get him unelected. 
which I did and was, you know, the, the candidate was successful. Uh, and he's Gary Sheeler's no longer on the city council. Um, that's a very, that's a very good thing. I think the other thing that you can do that I've seen is you have to have people there with you. Um, you know, I, I'm, I, again, I'm not like the, I'm not a, I'm an engineer and I'm not like a activist kind of person. Um, but it just in my own little way, building coalitions of people here locally that will show up at meetings with you, that will raise issues with you, that will magnify the things that you care about um, in the public realm. I mean, you, you're, you're talking about public, a local public policy debate. How do we change people's minds so they change policy? And it's not, I think you've got to have good arguments and you've got to have the right thing to say and you've got to have the right policy approach and, and Strong Downs can help you with all those things. But at the end of the day, you've got to create a coalition for change at the local level. And I, I, don't, see, I, I don't see any way around that. Do, do you, Kia? I mean, I, I don't see, like, all of a sudden you utter some, I think people sometimes think that, like, Chuck Marone can just utter magic words and then people will see things and everything will change. And I'm telling you, if that worked, uh, we would not have strong towns because I would have uttered those things years ago and things would have changed and then we'd just move on. I think you're absolutely right. And I like to hear you say you're not an activist type person, but when you talk about coalitions of power, I am an activist type person <laughs> and you are speaking my language. Um, power can be the power to move people. It can be the power to move money. It can be kind of any sort of coalition building that you have the resources to do. I would add to that, however, if you are trying to talk to someone for whom the funeral of, you know, a child who died crossing a street isn't compelling, you have to think like them, which I know, like Chuck and I, like that's really compelling to us. Like we are both the kind of people, I know Chuck has said, and I totally agree with him that we should design streets that you should be able to walk into blindfolded and backwards and drunk and not get hit by a car. Like, and that's kind of a radical thing to say. I acknowledge that. Um, but uh, there are people that are going to hear that. And no matter what you do, they're going to say, no way. People have to take some personal responsibility in this world. Um, for those people, you have to identify what they do care about. And you have to connect what you care about to what they care about. That's the kind of core trick. Um, I was listening to an NPR podcast the other day about, you know, there was a guy who he was not personally a believer in climate change, but he had solar panels on the roof of his, you know, like off-road vehicle because he believed in self-sufficiency. Um, and that argument sort of works vice versa. If you're someone who really believes in self-sufficiency, this is how you get the climate change people on your side and you go back and forth. So for the argument of the question of how do you, like get people who see the vast horror of traffic collisions and say, okay, I guess we better tell pedestrians to wall themselves up inside of cars and stop walking around these dummies. Um, maybe shift the conversation. Does this person care a whole lot about their city finances? Strong Towns has a hell of a lot of articles that you can read and share with them about how pedestrian safety is actually directly tied in many of our communities to the things that are eating like a cancer at our city bottom lines. If this person cares about aging in place, you know, these pedestrian fatalities, they're not going to be able to age in place if they don't have access to the mobility network. Um, take a deep breath. Don't, don't say you should care about what I care about. Um, as like antithetical and hard as that is, because we think human life should be 
you know, absolutely the thing that everyone cares about. But think about what they do care about. People do care. They just express their care in different ways and towards different ends. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I, you know, we can do it. Uh, we, we go back and forth with this too a lot because, um, you know, there's a lot of people who are advocating the pedestrian space who use the financial arguments as kind of like, uh, oh yeah, and then this. Um, I, th- I think you've got to find like people who sincerely share. I, I, I think this is the one, of the one of the things that our development pattern and uh, the intersection of social media and all this has done is um, it's kind of walled us off from people who have different worldviews than we do oftentimes. And um, that not only keeps us from not understanding other people's worldview, um, but also from not understanding it in a genuine way. So if you go talk to someone who, you know, you disagree with, and Kia says, you know, find, find areas of commonality, um, that's, there's a nuance to that too, because it's not commonality like, well, you care about this, so you should. It's uh, explain to me your values and let me try to understand those and let me try to grasp those and let me see if, you know, we can find a a way for this to, to, to come together. It's a hard, it's so hard. Um, I want to add one little thing though. Uh, Whenever I see a place say like we're leading in pedestrian deaths or we have, uh, you know, the highest rate or whatever. Um, Generally, what that is an indication of is one of two things, or sometimes even both. One, it's a place that's becoming poorer, uh, so more people are walking now. Or two, it's a place that's becoming urbanized, so more people are walking now. It's generally like a place that's in some type of transition. Um, And so what you have in it, because you know, there's a lot of places that are probably worse to walk than the place. The places that statistically show up with the most pedestrian deaths are not the necessarily the worst for walking. They're just the places where you have the highest number of people walking with the, you know, the, the most number of bad places. Some places are so horrible for walking that absolutely nobody walks there, right? Um, so w- what you have, and, and I'm saying there's a, there's, a, there's a silver lining out of the tragedy is what you have in those places is a natural growing coalition of people who are walking. You have more and more people there who are walking. So if this is a place you've been for, you know, live for decades uh, and like 10 years ago, you're like, I, you know, I'd like to get people together and there was nobody there. Go out today because there's people there. There's people there walking. There's coalitions of people that you can tap into. They're getting killed by cars, um, but they're getting killed by cars because there's more of them today than there were in the past. And so you have natural allies like sitting out there waiting to be tapped into that you didn't have a decade ago. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Now I've got one from Otis of Greenfield, Massachusetts. Otis says, I know the value of an urban forest or even just a simple street tree, but how do I convince the director of the pu- Department of Public Works and the town engineer to plant in the tree, pel- tree belt, a.k.a. that strip of land that lies between the sidewalk and the curb, and a tree belt sounds like the green belt, like it's like a gigantic region, <laughs> um, rather than on private property? And as a corollary, what cities are leaders in urban forestry? Mm. That's a really, it's a good question. It's another one of those, you know, what's the magic utterance that yeah. I do that will convince people? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, I hate to, 
I, I always like reflexively try to find something besides Portland I can cite um, because Portland is, is in many ways like an, an anomaly um, that you can't cite very easily, particularly here in the Midwest and say, well, in Portland they did this and then everybody just shuts off their brain. But Portland has done a ton with street trees and there have been some really cool studies out of Portland that show like for every street tree you have, property values go up $9,000. That's Portland prices. But even if it's like I say, even if it's $900, even if it's $90, if the tree costs you 50 bucks to put in, you're going to make that money back in a few years. Um, you know, the street trees are the lowest cost, highest like return on your investment thing you can possibly do. It's, it's, it's so ridiculous, the math on them, that it's, it's not even like a hard case to make. I think though, for me, where I found the most, um, because I've, I've, I've run into this too, the maintenance people here do not want the street trees in the, you know, they, they hate them. And they hate them because they, they hate them because people like them. Basically, I can, mm-hmm. you come down to that. And let me explain that. Um, because, you know, as an engineer, I ran into this all the time. When you're going in and you're doing a project and you've got to dig up a pipe or dig up a curb or dig up something and there's a tree there, um, sometimes that tree, you either have to work around it, which is a pain in the neck, right? I don't like, I don't like pain in the neck. I would like to yeah. just have everything flat and nothing <laughs> there and just go. Um, and that's a maintenance worker's mentality, you know. Not to, not to denigrate them, but, the, you know, the, the straight wide street that is, you know, as wide as the snow plow and has no curves and no bumps and nothing is like the best, easiest thing to plow because you just go. It's the same thing with mowing. We can have a nice flat field with no trees to mow around. I can mow that a lot quicker. Um, so they don't like them because they get in the way. They also don't like them because they have to deal with people. People take ownership mm. of them. So like, this is my street tree. You're coming in and you're digging this up. Are you going to damage my tree? Are you going to hurt my tree? Now I've got to go talk to, you know, now I'm the project engineer. I've got to go, you know, I'm the, I'm the maintenance supervisor. I got to go talk to every dumb person on this street and they're going to bitch and moan about their tree and how I'm going to kill it. And then when it falls down in three years from now, they're going to blame me whether I was to blame or not. So the best thing is you just not have these trees. And that literally like is embodied in the mentality of, of many of our cities. Flip it around though. People love the tree. That's why they're a pain in the neck to you because you've got to go deal with the people because they, 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 they care about the tree. They, they feel the tree. The tree adds value to their life, to their property, to the place that they're in. It provides shade. It provides beauty. It, it has all these like things. It, 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 it frames the, the public realm. A, a, a tree-lined street is really a, an aesthetically beautiful thing. That's how your salary is getting paid. Like that's how your pension is getting paid. That's how wealth is being built in your community. Um, if our job is to maintain stuff as easily as possible, we will have cities that are easy to maintain that nobody loves. If our job is to build cities that people love and then adapt our approach to maintaining that, that means that like everything's going to be a lot messier. It's going to be a lot more complicated. It's going to require people with more nuance and more patience um, and more understanding. By the way, I would pay those people more. Um, 
you do all those things and all of a sudden now the tree becomes the, the huge asset. So I, I, I think the question has to be, the answer has to be to start a dialogue to, to turn it around from the tree being the nuisance to the tree being like the first signal that this is a neighborhood that is building wealth, becoming more prosperous, becoming more successful. And by the way, that's how we pay your salary, street maintenance guy. Yeah. I think that's a beautiful answer. I will say that I was having a conversation the other day. This is maybe going to turn into me asking you a question, Chuck, about street trees in St. Louis. Um, because me and my book club read uh, Jeff Speck's book, and um, he recommends street trees in the specific the same reasons you do. And my friend who works for the city said, well, that's all well and good, but in the wealthy areas of St. Louis, um, the homeowners associations have planted a bunch of street trees. They love them and care for them just the way that you described. But in North City, which is a lot poorer, historically disinvested, um, trees have been planted kind of haphazardly and the residents hate them because they weren't maintained, they're cracking up the sidewalks, the kids are bored and they have nothing to do. So they're uprooting the trees and causing a big mess. Um, and the North side has been deforested for that reason. My response to that was like, well, that's, that's the problem of like unequal access to services and resources. Like if that, I bet someone loved those trees at some point and then something went down, but I, I can't help but wonder if, um, Otis is the street director in Otis's question is anticipating that sort of outcome for a street tree. <laughs> I'm, I'm curious if you, yeah, I, I feel like that is an over. Huh. Okay. I, I'll say this. Whenever I hear people talk like that, like the, the second one you described, it's right. like, when they plant trees there, those people, they just rip them up and they, yep. you know, they're destroying everything. And it's, it's almost like an excuse to not solve a problem or to yeah. not like deal with it. Now, do those things happen? Yeah, I'm, I'm sure that they do. Um, are those places, like if we went to one of those neighborhoods, would we look at that neighborhood and say, the, the number one thing that this place needs right now are street trees? Probably not. I think maybe take care of that number one thing first, the number one, two, three, four, and you'll eventually get to street trees. Um, but like street, I, I almost, this, this, is, this is a natural human reaction to things. I've talked about this as the cargo cult mentality. Um, mm -hmm. The idea is that like, well, the wealthy neighborhood has street trees and they're well tended and well cared for. If we just put in street trees in the poor neighborhood, they would, you know, have similar success and prosperity. And it, it's like, you know, yeah, the wealthy people drive cars. If the poor people just drove cars, you know, it's, it's like, yeah. you, you're, it's a different context. It's a different place. And, and when I talk about like last week, I wrote the thing of public engagement and the idea of going out and observing people. When we did this project here in, in Northeast Brainerd, uh, that resulted in that neighborhood's first report, which anybody can get just type strong towns neighborhood first, you'll get the report that we put together for, uh, my hometown, when we went out and observed the neighborhood and observed where people were struggling, there were tons of streets without street trees. Uh, but our eighth project of eight projects, one of our recommendations was this one street in particular had gaps. And if we could go in and fill in those gaps. So in other words, it was a strategic tree planting. It was like, this is a street that's ready for them. These other streets need like other things first 
crosswalks, slowing down traffic, doing other things till they get to that point. And they also need like the investment of this street being really successful. I think just to say like our city's policy is every street will have street trees is like taking a smart response and making it really stupid. It's, it's the orderly but dumb approach. Like, okay, we'll have them everywhere. Go, go out to that neighborhood that's struggling and figure out what it is that people struggle with. Yeah. I'm guessing it's not street trees at this point. Yeah. <laughs> and street trees can be in the arsenal, but they're not a cure-all because nothing is. Exactly. <laughs> so exactly. let's go to a question live from Joy Gleason. So Joy says, I would like to increase the tourist industry in my town of about 100,000 people. Is It is not an industry that is well-respected where I am. Do you have any suggestions about how to communicate the benefits of adding another industry to the economic base of this area? Um, our town is struggling financially because of paying retired employees, and we need to expand our basis of possible yeah, yeah. economic sources. Um, because we've had a number of questions about what's like the magic word <laughs> to say, um, I want to emphasize the word communicate enjoys our enjoys question. Are there ways either with argument or by other means to communicate the benefit of tourism industry to a town that she's, I'm assuming she's done an assessment and decided that that actually would be a good first increment. Well, I, I struggle with, I struggle with the whole, I, I'm struggling with this whole question in many it's ways. One. Yeah. And, and it's like, okay, we have a town of a hundred thousand and uh, I want to increase tourism to it. I'm like, okay, get that. Like, do you have tourism today or not? Like, I would start with, you know, what can you do? I mean, the, the, the way you communicate, let me, let me walk you through, uh, I think, a city that's been very successful with this, starting from no tourism and now is like a really great tourist place. Have you heard of this town, Crosby, Minnesota, Kia? <laughs> In fact, I stayed there a couple of weeks there. ago because... Weeks ago. During our staff retreat, Chuck Brown. <laughs> yes. Yes, I have. So, it was fantastic. So my hometown of Brainerd is an old railroad town with a paper mill in the middle of the Brainerd Lakes area. And a lot of people from Minneapolis-St. Paul say, we're going up to Brainerd for the weekend. They actually mean like the lakes and the stuff around Brainerd. Brainerd's kind of been the thing people drove past or drove through and didn't really stop. Um, Crosby is like a smaller version of Brainerd 15 miles away. It's on the edge of the Iron Range. It's an old mining town. You got, were kind of disgusted when I was explaining the mining pits and how we like to swim. <laughs> um, it's not a place that was ever like a tourist place at all. It really wasn't. Um, and if you, would have had to, if you would have stepped back maybe 20 years ago and looked and said, which one, Brainerd or Crosby, would be more likely to be a tourist place, um, you would have said Brainerd. You know, I think it had the most potential, certainly the closest to other things that were going on. Um, instead of, I think, communicating a strategy, uh, in other words, going out and saying, Crosby can be a tourist place if we just put our hearts and our minds into it. Um, what they did is they started really small. Uh, they started with a, uh, a off-road, you know, they, they've got all this land around the mine pits that the mines have used up and, and now, you know, are pretty unusable for anything else. Uh, they went and created some mountain bike trails out there. And, you know, mountain bike trails are one of these things where you can create them on a really low budget for really hardcore mountain bikers. 
in like a decent period of time. This, this has some topography. It's got some nice scenery. They went out and did this. And over time, they kept getting better and better. And they ultimately qualified for a, a, a grant from our state uh, recreation fund and built some really nice trails. Simultaneous with this, uh, what you saw were some of the abandoned shops in the downtown started to get little like bike shops slash, uh, you know, uh, sub place. Um, you started to just see like incremental things start to happen around people that were in this industry. It, there, there wasn't like a real huge push. They didn't go out and build something big, you know, to get kickstart this whole thing. It just kind of happened organically over time. When we went to get an Airbnb, because the whole staff was coming here, the whole team was in Brainerd, um, I couldn't find one in Brainerd, but I could find all kinds in Crosby. Because and they were bike themed also, they were bike -themed. I will say. They were really on brand. <laughs> they and they cool. were great places to eat there. And it was, so if you look at my hometown now in Brainerd, we're talking about like, we're in the middle of this tourism area. Do you know what the big, the, the plan is right now from like the people who are thinking big about the city? They want to build a children's museum. Why? Mm -hmm. Because then we could attract all kinds of people. And I, I think the better model is to look up the road at Crosby and say, okay, how do we start with where we're at today? And instead of trying to sell like a strategy, like this is something we could do if we just stepped up and did something big and built a children's museum or did whatever, how do we just start with what we have? And, and the communication strategy becomes doing little things and building it up and making it viable. I, I think that's the only way that it actually works. Absolutely. And I will say that, you know, maybe for Brainerd that takes the form of you do a one day event that's like a family event that's designed to draw people to the region. Um, like there's an increment that doesn't involve you investing in like a new marketing position and, you know, like really throwing all of your resources towards like, come here, come here. We're so thirsty for you to come here. Um, there, the best way to communicate and the reason I emphasize that word is to do something and see how people respond and iterate based on what you learn. I think that's really as simple as that. Right. Totally agree. Um, well, and I, I think, you know, one of the observations, just stepping back, the best tourist towns uh, are the highest quality of life places. And, and I've said this many times, like if you want to become a tourist town, uh, become a great place to live for the people who are there now. And if you do that, you, you will be inundated with tourists. Absolutely. Um, we've got another one from here from Chris of Denver, Colorado. Um, and we've been talking a lot about coalition building today. So this is kind of nitty gritty example of one. So Chris says, person number one says, add density where you need it, but incrementally and with fewer zoning restrictions, which he says is basically more or less the strong towns approach. Um, versus we have a person number two who says add density, but only work with the largest developer you can find so that your city can make a deal and do it very efficiently and require them to provide below market rate housing or other subsidies. Um, both of these people, both of these viewpoints are anti not in my backyard and pro housing affordability, but they conflict. How do we bridge those gaps? And I choose to interpret this question as turn person number two into an ally for the strong sense movement. Right. I think this really ties into the code next thing in Austin and, and what yeah. they're doing. Right. And I had a little bit of commentary with people over the weekend and people started to, uh, to forward one of my quotes uh, to each other. I saw it on Twitter a couple of places. 
basically what I, what I said was, I, I think a strategy where part of the community is kept under glass and experiences no change, while another part of the community experiences radical change, mm-hmm. and that the radical change is supposed to allow the no change to exist in like a, a, a non-financially viable way. To me, that's not a stable strategy. You know, that, that's, that's, not a, that's not a stable way to do things. And I, I think for any city to be a strong town, I think for any city to be financially solvent and productive, the number one kind of mental thing we have to dispense with is the idea that our neighborhoods will not change. Um, we have to be open to, at all times, uh, an evolution of our neighborhoods to the next level of intensity. And if we're not, if we're not, if we look at a single family home neighborhood and say, this will forever be a single family home neighborhood, it will never change, you know, world without end, like I, I you know, like this is it, <laughs> that, that's a bizarre, that, that, that is, this is the only time in human history that that has ever been put forth as a notion. It, and I think it is just a ridiculous, like non-viable notion. It, it denies uh, the way complex systems work. Now, some neighborhoods may persist as single-family neighborhoods for a long time uh, because there's no demand to do anything else with them. Um, but every neighborhood needs to be able to ad- adapt and grow and change. I, I think the premise of a, of a thing like Code Next or, or you know, what they've done in Denver with the large developers and the condo units is this kind of, it's an it's a illicit bargain in my mind where you go to some people in the community and say, we know you like your single family home. We know you like your single family neighborhood. We also know in the back of our head, like the math doesn't work and this doesn't make sense. Um, but you can keep it exactly the way you want because you don't want it to change. And developers who would like to build this stuff, go ahead and keep building like lots of it out on the edge. Go ahead and build more. Like we'll do the sewer and the water and the whole Ponzi scheme thing. Go ahead. But in exchange for that, what we need is we need some developers to build some big ass towers over here so that we get some tax base to support all this. And if you guys don't support that tower and don't support like completely revamping this neighborhood over here, um, we're not going to be able to afford like your, the stuff that you want. And so I, I feel like that is the bargain being put forth. And it's a, it's a bad trade. It's a bad deal because you leave huge swaths of the city financially not viable and you build things that are in the same kind of, you know, post-World War II suburban experiment built all at once to a finished state. Again, not looking to evolve or change or adapt over time. And I think you're just in a kicking the can down road kind of end of Ponzi scheme kind of way, just buying yourself more time. Um, what we need to do is acknowledge that uh, our cities have expanded horizontally way, way too far. Denver, Austin, all of them. And we need to allow our neighborhoods essentially to figure out what comes next. We need to give them all room to breathe, not room to cannibalize everybody else, uh, but room to breathe. And we need to allow that breathing, that expansion, that evolution to happen. And um, that would be more like the person number one. And I, I feel like if we're having an intellectual conversation with person number two, that conversation is, goes to the, um, the fact that they're not really solving the underlying problem. They're solving a density metric, but density is not the problem. 
density is not the problem. It's a metric, but it's not the problem. Absolutely. And to the question of how you get person number two on board with person number one, I think you have to ask them about what happens after that power gets built. Like, yeah, I think you might look at our two propositions, me, the strong hands advocate, you, the build a tower by a transect line or whatever you're, you are advocate, um, and say, it's the same outcome, right? It's the same outcome this year. It's not the same outcome in five years. It's not the same outcome in 10 years um, because you built a fragile development pattern that if what you care about is affordable housing, um, getting more roofs over more heads, getting, you know, I, mean, I just saw an article on NPR today that the new housing crisis is um, we've restricted construction in places that really need it. If you care about that new housing crisis, this is going to amplify that in 10 years. Um, how far can you look out? This is actually a case where I think um, words actually matter a lot because you are in a, like a conflict of ideas and you have enough common ground that you can talk to this person and right. say like, let's get to your core value and let's talk about the long range because we care about the same thing. I'm just looking a little further past the horizon than you because I've studied a little bit further back possibly than you have. And that's okay. Not everyone has to be an expert on this stuff, but I found this great stuff called strong towns and I learned a little bit about the way that cities historically have um, failed in the development model that you're describing. And I think that this would work a lot better. Here are some examples of why. Yeah. Totally agree. Cool. All right. Um, so I think we probably have time for one more quick question. Um, if anyone wants to pop one into the Q&A real quick. But I could also just kind of ask, you know, I have one in the Q&A here. That's sort of a classic one um, that kind of bears repeating over and over. Um, how does Chuck specifically feel about DPZ's smart code and other form-based code? Is form-based coding consistent with a strong towns approach? And for people who don't know, what does DPZ stand for, Chuck? I am one of those. Twenty planners ever. They're uh, okay. uh, <laughs> Thank you. I was like Department of Planning and Zoning. No, no, <laughs> like no, all of that. Uh, okay. It's a. It, they're a, okay. a planning firm out of uh, Miami, the one of the premier firms in the country. Cool. Um, yeah, and DPZ uh, and and others have put together a, a form-based code called the Smart Code. Um, placemakers deal with this all the time. It's a, it's a very good, it's a, it's a, it's a great model. I, I think um, I would like to answer the question like this. Back when I was a planner slash zoner, uh, back in like 2004, when I was first came across the smart code, I was looking for answers to problems that I was facing. Mm -hmm. And I, I still was, I was becoming more suspect of this but I still was of the mindset that if I just found the right zoning code, that I could not only make my community successful and prosperous, but I could cure cancer, I could bring Middle East people, <laughs> I could do all kinds of wonderful things through right. zoning. And I've since come to like doubt the, uh, the, the, the power of zoning to do good, um, you know, and, and come to maybe respect the limits of zoning. Uh, so I would answer a question like this as a tool. I think the smart code is genius. Um, I think the people that put it together are genius. I, I, I think as a model, it's a really great model to start with and work with. Um, if you're looking between a Euclidean based, you know, use based zoning ordinance where we say, 
in this neighborhood, you have single family homes. And in this neighborhood, you can have duplexes. And in this neighborhood, you can have taller apartment buildings. That's a broken model. And the smart code is leagues beyond that. I mean, it's a, it's a great, it's a great transition. Um, if you're thinking that it's going to solve like every problem in your community, uh, you're putting too much faith in it. It is a tool in the toolbox. It is an improvement on the conventional zoning that we become used to. And I certainly would recommend um, looking at it. I'm in the process right now of writing a form-based code for that one street in the neighborhood I mentioned earlier, the one where we're having the, the transition from the Strode mm -hmm. area to the neighborhood. Um, I'm writing a form-based code for that street. And my hope is in an incremental way, if that works out really well, the city will say, wow, this form-based code stuff really makes sense. Let's extend it throughout the neighborhood. That would be fantastic. But right now we're focusing on that one street. So I think it's a huge, I think it's a great approach. One, one little thing in the smart code, and it might not be in anymore, but it was in in 2004 or five. Um, and I got this straight from Andres Duani. I, I heard him lecture on this one point at length and it stuck with me and it, it changed the way I think about a lot of things. Um, he talked about the transect zones all upzoning like once in a generation. And his argument was, and it was a, it was a, it's a course like way to do what I think has become more refined. But the idea was you'd never want a neighborhood to stagnate in a zone. The, the, the problem with a zone is that you set like, here's what you can do in this zone and then build all at once to a finished state. You're done. And, and Andres realized, and I think communicated this to me that neighborhoods need to evolve and change over time. So part of what they wrote into that code and what they tried to put into the, like the Miami code that they, the, one of the first big form-based codes in this country was the idea that their transects, which is kind of, you can roughly think of it as their like way of doing zones, their transects would bump up once a generation so that there would never be like a permanent cap on what you can do. We've kind of changed that and said, okay, instead of using this kind of rote very mechanistic approach, use a more fluid approach where every neighborhood could kind of evolve to the next level of intensity. And once you evolve to that level of intensity, you could evolve to the next one. Um, so it becomes like an evolutionary process as opposed to a, a, a mechanistic like planning, you know, we're going to put this rule in place and then change it to this rule. But the concept of it is all Dwani. The idea that neighborhoods need to grow and evolve is, is, taken straight from the smart code. I think we're getting a book recommendation. I just realized that I have this behind me too. This is a fantastic, uh, yeah. yeah. I was looking, I yeah. saw it in the thing. I've got a, you know, a handful of them right there, all form-based code stuff. This one I used, um, I'll hold this one up here uh, so you can okay. see. It. I yeah. used this one, and for the people who are listening on the podcast, it's called Form-Based Code, A Guide for Planners. Urban Designers, Municipalities, and Developers by Dan Perlick. <laughs> I know Dan like now. It's funny because I didn't know him when I bought this book. Uh, <laughs> Karen Perlick and Paul Crawford. Uh, forward by Elizabeth Pleiter Zaberg and Stephanos Polonoides. I know these people well too now. Mm -hmm. um, I used this book in writing a couple form-based codes for little cities around here back in the, uh, the pre-strong town days. So uh, highly recommended. Yeah. 
Well, thanks for indulging me on a more um, urban plenary question because I know we always get those and yeah. people like me are like, what's the DPZ? <laughs> I think I would love to get more of that stuff in my vocabulary um, over time, but you don't need to know that stuff to participate in Strong Town. So mm. we can kind of end here. Um, I just wanted to say thank you so much, Chuck. Thank you to everyone who answered, um, who asked questions today. Keep them coming. We hold on to all of the questions that are pre-submitted that we don't get to for future webcasts. And um, thank you for being a member of the Strong Towns movement. And thanks for doing all that you can to build Strong Towns. Have a great day. Thank you, everybody. Take care. Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made this city? The window is not always open, but if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through. I like you. I like your vision of the, of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit. Agenda 21. Yeah.